Hey everybody, this is Mike Wardrop from Encounter Church Adelaide and thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. Our prayer is that through this podcast, you can have an encounter with Jesus that will change your life. And now get ready for an inspiring message from our preaching team. Now we're about to come to an exciting time. I'm going to spend a minute in a second interviewing Nick and Mary Hawks uh, who are here to share with us this evening. We are really, really privileged. Um, Nick and Mary, won't you join us? It'd be wonderful. Will you make them feel really welcome? So these, these wonderful folk have been linked in my life for a very long time as school parents, mm-hmm. as I went to school with your daughter, which sounds like not a big deal, but we didn't go to a Christian school, really. Mm-hmm. You know, we, went to, we went to a school in the inner eastern suburbs, and really there's only like three of us I know that, that follow Jesus. So the fact that their daughter is one of my closest friends is, is a little bit unusual. Uh, and then he, she went and married my best friend, so that's even better again. What I like your family. Yeah, there you go. Oh, bless you. And, um, <laughs> and we've even babysat your daughter. You have? We have. Have you really? When yeah. was that? Callum and Katie were babysitting and they forgot they had to go somewhere, so they dumped her at our place. Wow. So You can know. call me dad. I, I sometimes do, but not to your face. I, it's, it gets strange. Um, let's talk a, li- a little bit about your life. You have led a very interesting life, you two, and um, we'll, we'll get to why you're here in a moment. But can, can we hear a little microcosm of how you came to faith in Christ? You start, because you because you're all right. I never intended to be a Christian. It happened by mistake. Uh, I was much more interested in beer and all the things to do with adrenaline and sport. So I was not the most promising candidate. I was parked in an English boarding school, despite being Australian, and endured that with a twin brother. Pretty handy beast to have when you're in amongst Englishmen who are very rude about people from Australia. And um, anyway, our local chapel was the Rochester Cathedral. Go figure. I mean, that was... So we saw a side of Christianity which was very cathedral-ish and uh, didn't like it very much, to be honest. And so it was very confused. So I thought if God was, was obliging enough uh, to make it so difficult to get to know him, I'd be obliging enough and not get to know him. It was really quite, quite a good contract. <laughs> until I met a nerdy physics master who was nine years older than me, not, not, not long, and um, because this was his first posting and I was in the end of my time at, at the King's School, Rochester. Founded in 604, by the way. I was invited to the 1400th anniversary. How about that? And uh, <laughs> some of this master, the original master, is still there, actually. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> the food is certainly the same. <laughs> Won't go there. But, but this nerdy physics master, this is, and he was slightly Asperger's as well, so he was socially awkward. So he's just the sort of person that you, you wouldn't want to hang out with if you want to be cool. You and know? I believe he said he ran marathons. Yeah, you know, ran marathons. And he nerdy. brought his lunch along in paper bags and folded the bag up afterwards. He's one of those sorts of guys, you know, just <laughs> ba- barely features on the Richter scale at all <laughs> when it comes to it. Yes. But something positive came out of that. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> now, the positive minutes, bit was this. Five minutes of making fun of your dear friend. And, That's and, right. And well, I can do that because he's just been <laughs> to stay with me, actually, for, for us, uh, with us both for a week. And as I have, but anyway, this, this, this nerdy, most unlikely guy took us sailing in a little open dinghy, the sort of thing you sail off a beach for a f- few hours. But we sailed it two weeks nonstop around the southwest coast of England, uh, past those horrendous granite cliffs and all that. It is ridiculous. And, uh, it is crazy. We ran into a storm somewhere near St. Ives and got bashed up and floated in and, 
And, um, and, I, and t- this, this nerdy physics master used to read his New Testament every morning. And the boat was kicking around like that. And my brother and I were getting on the serious business of kicking breakfast. And believe me, we've only got two square meters of floorboard. Like, you know, that we living in two square meters of floorboard for a fortnight is an interesting exercise, by the way. <coughs> what raises all sorts of hygiene issues. Uh, uh, and and he, sh- he shared the Christian gospel. And I was way too cool to become a Christian. Uh, so I became a Christian two weeks later uh, at a sale. <laughs> anyway, and, um, and then that was about uh, 17, I guess, at that stage. And, uh, but I always knew there's something more to Christianity. And so I prayed a prayer after a year. I said, Lord, I think I'm missing something. And as a result of praying that prayer, I ended up working with Jackie Pullinger in the ganglands of the walled city in Kowloon Wall City in Hong Kong in 1972. And uh, at a time when Jackie's ministry just exploded. And uh, then I came back to Portsmouth Polytechnic, because I'm still waiting for God to let me be a marine biologist. And it hasn't happened yet, which is uh, a concern. And then... That's where we met, because we were doing the same course. I was a devout atheist, but I was in big emotional trouble for a whole load of reasons that I don't need to go into. And But I was absolutely... 100% convinced it was totally ridiculous to think that there might be a God, okay? But Nick always wore this badge. It was what he did in the early 70s. It looks a bit sad now, but that's what he did. Thanks, sir. And it said, Jesus is alive today. And we're at some, you know, meet the staff and students kind of do. And I asked him whether he wore it because he meant it or because it looked good. Because I have a friend, I had a friend at school who was studying just along the coast, who I knew would have worn it because it looked good. Um, and he, t- I don't know what he said. I, I have not got a clue. Even that night, I don't know what he said. But I knew that God was real. Because you'd seen such a fine specimen of the image of oh, God. Oh, I like this guy. <laughs> I mean, he was, he was on fire. I mean, he'd just come back from Hong Kong. Yeah. I mean, he'd been back two or three weeks. Yeah. You know, the fire was not going out. You know, it's like Moses with the veil over his face. It was that kind of deal. And um, I didn't, at that point, understand that I could know God for myself. But I knew that that moment that God was real. But... Out of four and a half thousand students, I scored a Christian roommate, um, which I thought was somewhat unusual, uh, unlikely, maybe I should say. And she told me that I could know God for myself and I could ask Jesus to be part of my life. And one December night, it was a Saturday night in early December in 1972, I asked Jesus if he was there, because I still had to hedge my bets a bit. Um, to do something with my life. And I physically felt something lift off me. I had no language to describe what had happened to me. I hadn't got a clue. And if people for several weeks after that asked me if I was a Christian, I, I couldn't answer them. Well, I would have said no, because I didn't understand what being a Christian meant. Um, but I had given my life to Christ, and he had lifted what I now believe to be the weight of sin mm. off me. And my life has never been the same. There you go. 
It's an extraordinary journey. I mean, we don't have time to go through. I, I honestly spent an hour and a half just interviewing Nick early last year um, just to talk about this because they have such a fascinating story. I mean, it's such a short period of time to go from atheist to travelling on the boat around the southwest of England to becoming a Christian to going and working with the triads in Hong Kong with Jackie Pullinger to coming back to romancing and converting this lovely woman here. No, That's that took him two and a half years, Mike. Don't get working. excited. <laughs> well, I'm still waiting for the romance. It, it, I mean, <laughs> it took him a long time to work up to being the man to romance you, you, you know? You okay. But... I, we, we come to today and you have led an extraordinary life of uh, faith and apologetic and I, uh, probably just faith is the word that stands out to me when I think of you too. Faith and joy and this overflow of love from the gospel that, that, it, that it delights you and overflows from you to others. You, you have a, a strong ministry of apologetics that is the defense of the gospel, the explanation, the understanding of it. You have a strong um, wedding together of science and the gospel and an understanding of how those two work with each other, not against each other from your science backgrounds. Uh, of, of course, evangelism, church planning, all the fun stuff. And now you're here at a slightly different phase of life and you're, you're here to share a slight, well, not a different message, but I guess from a different place. And I just wonder if you could share a little bit about that part of your journey. I will, because he's going to talk in a minute. Um, Nick had been slowing down for quite a while, and he was extremely frustrated because he couldn't be the pastor he wanted to be. And he f therefore felt he was a failure. Eventually, we were told that he had a stage four cancer, and stage four is one step out of palliative care. That was 2016. Nick will give you the dates. Um, which was a shock. Well, he says it wasn't. He'd worked it out by then, but I, he hadn't told me. Um, so we went through the whole... But it, it was also a reason why he'd slowed down. And we went through the whole drama of um, working out what this meant, what needed to happen now. Actually telling the kids, that was awful. Mm. And it still cuts me up. But that's okay. They're big people. They can manage as well as we can. Um, so he went through surgery, nearly died. Chemo, nearly died. Radiation. And then they said, there's no more cancer, which was unbelievable. And even our doctors were using the miracle word, which is they don't profess any form of belief. And that was the case until... About six, six months, months ago, when there were 38 little dots on Nick's liver, and they were far too small to do anything about, to know what they could be, but there was also a lump in his neck. So eventually they took the lump in his neck out, and it was the same cancer come back. And so the assumption is, although they've never tested it, that that's what's happening in his liver. And we're now on the... Which, again, is, well, there's nothing we can do for you... Um, it's just a question of when rather than if, which I very unhelpfully probably said to the specialist, well, you said that to us once before. And he said, well, yes, I did. But, you know, but that is true because in the midst of everything like this, there is God. And Nick will have every day that God has intended for him to have. Um, and, you know, we're not... I said to someone... 
Um, in the first instance, once I got over the shock, I got my fight on. And then all these people come and say, oh, you poor thing. Oh, it's so sad. And, and I, actually asked, I actually said to some people, I can't continue this conversation. I have to stop this now because I've got my fight on. And if you're not going to fight with me, then this conversation is not going to help me. Um, and it's not like me to talk to people like that, but it's the only way I could survive. Um, we got our fight on, and I've still got my fight on most of the time, but we've just had a, a rough week, but that's okay, um, because God is faithful, and this morning over breakfast, we got ourselves centred back into Jesus, and it's all good again. And we don't know what the outcome will be, we don't know timelines, we know nothing, except that God is good, and he will work it out. <coughs> is that fair? I, I think that's brilliant, Mary. It, it's an interesting story. And, dear friends, it, it is your story, too, because each, each of you will face at some stage uh, what I'm facing, which is, again, terminal cancer. I can't do anything about it, ostensibly. It doesn't bother me much. We'll talk about that later. Uh, but, it's, but it's your story as well. <clears throat> so I wonder why we're hanging out together tonight. What questions would you like to ask of someone who's told they have an incurable cancer, who's just been bumped off the list for a new experimental drug that might just possibly have saved you. And they say, Nick, we can't even put you on it. Uh, it's too dangerous for you and your blood type. And that was what we heard three days ago, was it? Yeah. And so <coughs> we process that and say, well, OK, Lord, this is going to be a slightly more interesting journey. And that's OK. Mm. Yeah. So... If you've got some questions, I'd, I'd love to ask you what they are. You know, what, what would you trust me with in terms of a question? Do, do, I, do I have a bucket list? You know, all these sorts of things. Um, what, what does it feel like? Uh, what hope do you have? What joy do you have? Are you in denial, Nick? These would be, these would be great questions, wouldn't they? They're very real questions. Yeah. I, th I think uh, one, one of the gifts, and we'll hear some of this as Nick shares more later, is... Uh, Nick shares from a place of experience, personal experience, and, and a lived reality. That's really important for us as we wrestle with what the gospel means, not just when we feel good, but when we don't. Um, I, I wonder if just to finish this time, Mary, you used a phrase that was both uh, different and hilarious before when you said, you know, forget about the guy who's got a win-win scenario. Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, you're, you're in a slightly different position here. As, yes. as the spouse of someone going through this. Yes. For Nick, it's a win-win. If he gets to hang around and hang around with family and friends and preach the gospel some more, well, that's a win. If he gets to go and be with Jesus early, that's a win too. For me, if he dies, I think, bummer, that is not a win. Um, I don't want that to happen. I'm too young. I actually think I'd like to hang around with him a bit longer, which after nearly 43 years is maybe miraculous, but, you know. <laughs> but, but that's reality. I'm, I'm not keen that he should pop his clogs. And if we listen only to the doctors, he may, without any form of treatment, and so far there isn't any available, he may only have about six months to go, um, which is, I just think, no, I'm sorry, I can't accept that. That doesn't sit right with me. So that's maybe I'm in denial, but that's where it's that's where I'm at. I don't feel God has said, Mary, you need to prepare yourself to let him go. 
and I think he will. Maybe I'll be proved wrong, I don't know, but yeah. Thank you so much for your honesty. Uh, we okay. just really appreciate you both and really look forward to hearing from you later on, Nick. Um, can we thank Nick and Mary? Thank you. <laughs> Run out of puff. What an extraordinary privilege to be here. And I wonder why it is we're hanging out together. Um, what, would you, what would you want to say to someone who is facing uh, another death sentence, who is a Christian? What, what questions of your own are there? I don't want to embarrass you. Uh, I'd be very happy to to hear any, any questions, and, and we'll try and cover them. But I've, I've tried to anticipate a few in, in what we're sharing. What, what would you ask in that sort of situation? Are there, are there any things that you've always wanted to ask a, a captive theologian or an apologist when faced with the obscenity of death? Come on, let's be honest. You've, you've all, all, all had them. Or are you going to trust me to to try and answer them on the journey. Yeah? Yeah? Okay. yeah. <laughs> Great question. Has, has the cancer prognosis ever given me doubt? I'm going to be answering that one. That's a, that's a great question. Uh, does this mean you've got to be perfect all the way through you know, the whole drama of, of having... Uh, yeah, three years worth of living with cancer and being told you're going to die. What, what honestly is the response? And, 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 and I mean brutally honestly, not uh, a sort of super spiritual behaviour that is really just denial dressed up in drag, you know? Um, well, let's, let's, um, let's explore some of this. Because I have to say that death is the final test, isn't it, of what's true. Because if you've banked your entire life on believing that everything came from nothing, as a result of nothing, by a precedent that has never been discovered and which uh, undermines the laws of cause and effect which uh, underpin all science. In other words, if you're an atheist, it's the final test, isn't it? And the same for those of us who are Christians. Uh, it's, is it true, this, this extraordinary love story, this, this hope, is it true? Will it, will it work in the end? So it's the final test of what is true. So it's worth getting right, isn't it? Because, dear ones, let me tell you, we're all going to face it. And, um, and we'll cheer each other on. Let me tell you a story about Ruby. Ruby, uh, I was asked to visit Ruby in hospital. She, had, she was about 18 at that stage. And she'd had cancer since she was nine. And she had cancer in the face. And she was a beautiful girl, one of the, one of the people at Pembroke. Uh, school, beautiful girl, she had cancer in the face, so they took half her face off, got rid of the cancer and put the face back on, but it didn't go on straight. And so this beautiful girl, battling with cancer, disfigured. And she was personality plus. Rubes was unbelievable. And I had a friend who had been journeying with me in my cancer. I said, Nick, can you come and visit Ruby? And she's in Adelaide Hospital, the old one, um, just before it shut down. And, um, and, and share something of your peace in the face of death. I said, sure. What do you... And so went to visit Rubes and um, we had a lovely time together. 
And then nothing happened for a year. And I got this phone call. Nick, it's Ruby here. Can I come and see you? I'm out of hospital. So a friend, an atheist friend, drove around to my place and sat either side of the fireplace. And I said, Rubes, why are you here? And she couldn't really explain. But it was really two things, in essence. The first thing was that she did not have peace. So when you think of death, do you have peace? The other thing she had was a question, and that was, Nick, what can I hope for in the face of death? Now, imagine it's you. What would you say? I said that the Australian Aborigines have a saying that everyone remains a child until they know their story. It's a beautiful saying, isn't it? Let me ask you, do you know your story? Or are you still a child? Are you still looking? Are you still lost? Do you know who you are? What your meaning is on this extraordinary planet, in this amazing universe, 93 billion light years across, expanding at an exponential rate, and why? So I shared the Christian gospel. That she was always intended to live forever. That God, who, when he got weary of all our religions, came to town and died to take the blame for the sins which would otherwise separate you from a holy God. And The way is open to be home with God again. I also said to Ruby that Jesus' life was pathetic. A complete failure. Only in ministry for three years. I mean, how pathetic is that? Ruby, you're about to die early. You will not dance across the bridges of Paris. You will not have a family. It would seem so pathetic, wouldn't you? Doesn't it? Jesus only had three years of ministry. Your life is so short. And yet Jesus is the one person around all whom all of history hinges. So Ruby, it's not how long you live. It's what you do with it and whether you find out who you are. And then I shared the love story of the Christian gospel. She committed her life to Christ. Yes! Yes! Come on! Whoa, whoa, whoa! She did! And it was just beautiful. And she died six weeks later. I conducted her funeral. Over 800 people attended it. It was in the gardens of Carrick Hill. We couldn't fit anywhere else. It was interesting. She saw a psychiatrist before... She became a Christian who'd asked her, what does death look like? And she said, it's a, it's a, it's a black plate that you can't see through and it's just there in front of me. And uh, at a funeral, her sister reported that Rubes had subsequently seen the same psychiatrist who asked the same question. She said, oh, the plate's still there, but it's white. And, I, and, and not only white, but weirdly I can see through it. I thought, wow, what a picture. You know, that death was not the end. It was, she could see through it now. And uh, so that's the story. So there you are. Occasionally I pull nasty tricks, so beware. Um, and I did so when I was teaching at Influencers College. And I'd been asked, <laughs> I was the only non-Pentecostal that they'd asked to teach their students. So I don't know what that means. <laughs> but they rang me up and they said, Nick, could you t teach all the horrible subjects? Ah, you said, really? So yes, Nick, you're an apologist, so could you teach about abortion? Could you teach about euthanasia? Could you teach about suffering? Could you teach about uh, sex, sexuality, homosexuality? Could you talk about uh, suicide? Could you be talking? Oh, wow, how delicious. <laughs> Wonderful. I mean, this is gutsy stuff, you know? Uh, other faiths, Nick, 
you know, try, try doing that one politically correctly, team, and just, just quietly, there's a challenge, and doing it with grace and truth. Don't you love that description of Jesus in, in the prologue of John's Gospel? Man full of grace and truth. So that's got to be you, by the way, okay, as you represent to everyone who crosses your path the kingdom of God, yes. the grace and truth of the kingdom of God. I asked the students, I said, okay, just imagine um, that someone has come here with an incurable cancer. You know I'm going with this, don't you? An incurable cancer, and you are the pastor of the church. That's why you're training here. You're a pastor of a church. It's incurable, uh, and I've just told you, what would you say? Oh, and by the way, that person is me, and it is true. Wow. <laughs> a lot of blank faces. Ah. And again, let me ask you, what would you have said to me at that point? What could you say to me? Well, I made every beautiful mistake you could possibly make. Oh, Nick, if you have a little bit more faith, God would heal you, you see. Oh, I said, well, that's interesting. So apart from being not feeling great about the fact that I've got terminal cancer, I've now got to feel guilty that I'm not spiritual enough to get healed. <laughs> Thanks! And someone else said, ah, was trying to teach me all the healing verses in the Bible. And, uh, and I said, um, just a hint, I'm a theologian, know them well. Oh, and then one guy just put his head in his hands, Nick, I don't know what I'd say. I'd just give you a hug, I'd cry with you, and I'd say, I don't know how it works out, Nick, but somehow this is to God's glory. And I said, congratulations, top of the class. I, in coming here, this wonderful invitation from Mike to come here, I, I had a look at some of the emails that I wrote when I got cancer. You might be interested to, to know. And here are some of the things I said. I sense that I am sharing in the suffering of all of humankind, and I've got no right to expect to be exempt from that. I share it. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. Guys, we share it together. It, this, this, this is way short of God's end plan. Okay, so just get that. This is a real imperfect prelude to the main gig. And you've just got to get that, you know. And, and of course we get drowned. Of course we get crucified. Of course we get persecuted. Of course. But we don't watch all that from amidst it. God lifts us above it so we have an eternal perspective. And so it just brings it back down to size again. And it's just gorgeous. I have a sense that God is with me. The best is yet to come. And that is true. There's, there's nothing like the imminent prospect of death to, to concentrate the mind. And, and you, you lean back into God's love. Um, uh, so, oh, that's interesting, Lord. Right. And... And you think, is this God that I've always trusted, whose voice that I've developed an ear for so that I hear occasionally? Can I trust him now with the most sacred and difficult part of my life? And the answer, <laughs> the answer is yes, and some, actually. And just leaning, and I just, that's all I do, I just lean back and go, and, and people say, oh, Nick, are you going to, um, are you going to have time, are you worried about the time? Time? Worry about time? Well, how ridiculous is that? I've got the God of heaven and earth who makes a universe of unimaginable wonders. Extraordinary. 
go and just look at Nick and say, oh, I had plans that Nick did all this, that and the other, but damn it, cancer got him. Didn't see that coming. No, actually. <laughs> Leaning back into God means, Lord, every task you've given me to prefigure the kingdom of God on this planet, this mission that you've given me, you will give me the time, the health, and the ability to do all that you call me to do because you are just, you are good, and you are jealous for your name every bit as much as I am, and your spirit lives in me, and I can't do anything else. It's okay, isn't it, Lord? Yes, Nick, you see. And it's lovely testing that out. That's pretty special. I have a friend, Greg Murtha, who was dying of cancer in America, and both Greg and I are friends with Jossie Charco, who has planted 30,000 in his organization in part. Now, wait for this. 30,300 churches in India. 14 a day. And that is way cool. Any reason I'm talking about him is that we knew Jossie when it was just begun, you know. And uh, Jossie is using our resources for his training colleges in, across India. And they just multiply. They've, they've asked to do, <laughs> they asked me to write a Bible summary. Hilarious. I mean, would you? I mean, you look way too intelligent and way too clever to actually dare such an impudent and arrogant task as to summarize the Bible. I mean, you've got theologians squabbling over after every second word and you're going to upset all sorts of people, aren't you? So I, just, I, so I said, being possessed of, of great eloquence and wisdom. I said, no. <laughs> and then God gets to work and you throw out a flu fleeces and you, you know that God is calling you to do it. Oh my goodness. And so you do that. And then you think, and Jossie says, yes, I might get 50,000 of those printed off. And you go, that's not a bad print run, is it? 50,000? That puts me in the best seller list. <laughs> Come on, I mean, that's really exciting for me. Nobody buys my books. My mother is the only one who's ever bought a book that I've written. That's probably not quite true, but dangerously close to the truth. And then I, we, Mary and I come back from doing some mission work with remote Aboriginal kids in southwestern Queensland, and <laughs> there's an email from Jossie. Oh, Nick, got that wrong, not 50,000. Two million over a five-year period. Have a nice day. I'm thinking, oh, wow, gee, what was my contribution to that? I got up this morning. That's all I did. I just, the Holy Spirit takes it, bang. And so God's going to give me the time and the grace. And I'm probably not even going to know the significance of the things that I'm going to do on this planet. This is what my friend Greg Murtha wrote. And this is exactly me. This is exactly me. Listen, it's just beautiful words. I am thankful God used cancer to save me from myself. Cancer has sculpted me into someone who understands more deeply, hurts more often, appreciates more quickly, cries more easily, hopes more desperately, loves more openly, and lives more passionately. Frankly, I've discovered life is richer because of my interruption than it was without it. It leads me to places where there are people who need to receive what I have to share. It forces me to slow down and make eye contact with God. It makes me solely dependent on him, and there's no better place to be. Isn't that good? Let me tell you, whilst I was having the first bit of cancer 
they'd lop some bits out of me and they went through the chest and it's all around the heart and through the lung and all that sort of drama. And I was in, I was in intensive care being visited by my grandson with a bandage because he heard I was sick. And <laughs> bless him. And anyway, I had tubes all over the place. Well, the nurse looking after me was spectacularly beautiful. And, um, and it discovered over the days I was in, in, in intensive care that she was very much a free spirit. You know, clothes were actually optional for her much of the time. Whenever she felt like sex, she would just go out in the evening and have it and come back again. And then she'd go off to Queensland and remove her clothes and, and do all sorts of alternative things. Because it didn't take a genius to work out that he was a lost soul. And I don't know what I said, but I remember being awake one night, because you always have a nurse with you when you're in intensive care. And I said, I said, you are more sacred than you can possibly conceive. Well, then I went back to sleep. And we'd had a number of these little conversations, and I, I really can't remember them, because I was sort of boozled out with all the stuff. Anyway, she ends up, end up sharing the gospel with her. <laughs> I'm thinking, Lord, I'm in intensive care. Like, seriously? Right now? Well, anyway, they put me in an award, and, um, uh, and I, because uh, I get too well for intensive care, which is lovely, and opposite me, there's a cancer wing. And I, I thought, for the first time, I'm going to get out of bed, I'm going to take my drip for a walk. It's like walking the dog. Take my drip for a walk into the cancer wing, you see. And uh, I had, it was a bit of a tough night. I'd just been told by the doctor that morning that I confirmed that cancer, they couldn't get hold of it and it was terminal. And an old man had come in the night time and pissed on the floor right beside my bed. Like, I was, it was a bad day, you know? So I was taking my dog for a walk <laughs> into the cancer week. And it was deserted. It was just like as if Armageddon happened. It was just, no one was there. And there was this sign on... Uh, a, a lady's name, but the same surname as mine. And I thought, well, that's interesting. That's an unusual surname because I have an ES on the end. I wonder who she is. But the place was deserted. I turned around and came back again, and this rather fierce older middle-aged woman, you shouldn't be here, she said. And forgive me, guys, but I said, I'm so sorry. I thought that because I had cancer, I might earn the right. <laughs> Which is a rotten thing to say, wasn't it? I mean, come on. And um, <laughs> anyway, that went, she went, whoops, <laughs> so we had a, a conversation. It turns out she's a lesbian, has just come back from um, New Zealand and married her partner. And as I told her I was a pastor, well, she just went on about the church and how horrible it was. So I said, do you mind if we sit down? And I apologize on behalf of the church, and she's in tears. And I share the gospel with her. I said, really, Lord? Honestly? Seriously? I'm hooked up to a drip? I've just gone for the first walk that I've had in a, I don't know, eight days or whatever. So in other words, God will give you as much time and as much health to do what he calls you to do. And it's not necessarily the big things. You know, once upon a time, there was, there was a bloke sitting on an ash heap covered in pussy sores in agony, and he's using bits of broken pottery to scrape the pus off his sores. Let me just say that he didn't feel very triumphalistic at that point. He'd, his family had been killed, everything he possessed had gone. And yet that, at that moment, it was the greatest spiritual show and tell in the universe. And that man was Job, and his story's in the Old Testament. A terrific 
study of suffering. Sometimes success, as the world picks it, is not at all the same as God picks it. And that's why Mother Teresa, and this is the other gorgeous thing about leaning back into God when you've got cancer. Um, I'm not responsible for success. I'm responsible for being faithful. And someone asked Mother Teresa, you know, don't you care about the, aren't you worried about the millions of beggars that you cannot help? Your work is just a drop in the ocean. And Mother Teresa said, God has not called me to be successful. God has called me to be faithful. You see, isn't that, how freeing is that? You don't have to push the sun up on the horizon. You key in to God. You allow the Holy Spirit to wreck you. Take your emotions, your intellect. Take your places <laughs> you'd never expect. Let me just quietly tell you. I'm dyslexic. Four degrees, 12 books. I'm dyslexic. Go figure. That is only God. Quite, quite, quite legitimate. That is only God. I'm staggered at what God has done. I wrote to a dear friend of mine, Marie Watson. She's a nun. In fact, she just died this week. Uh, she's uh, one of the great mother figures uh, of Mary's life, my life, and, uh, and about a thousand other students at Portsmouth University. And I wrote to her and I simply said, you simply lean back into God's love and know he can be trusted, whatever happens. God takes away fear and gives hope. Having cancer has highlighted the joy of everything, friendships, family, beauty, and nature is the same as my mate Greg Merther. Cancer has helped me instill the values of God in regard, uh, helped me understand the values of God. The absurdity of ego and money. I mean, it's, it's just laughable, really, in front of a holy God. It's just laughable. You know, question it, wrong question. Are you part of his family? Do you have an eternal destiny? Have you picked up? Do you know who you are? I told Ruby, she, no wonder you're still alive, Ruby. You're just not ready to die. You haven't discovered who you are. <laughs> so I'm saying the same to you, okay? Right, good. In a letter to Sandy, who's, who's a um, colleague at Portsmouth University who really struggles with faith, and I said to her that it's been said that death wonderfully concentrates the mind. I suppose it does a bit. It certainly tests the worth and value of things, I was washing up this morning and hanging out the washing and finding real joy in it, and I am. It's interesting, isn't it? Sometimes I feel a bit of a fraud. People ask me with a hangdog expression, how are you going? And I say, fine, except I've got cancer. <laughs> People don't know what to say, and I quite understand that. <laughs> but I do, I feel fine. Uh, the weariness is really the only lingering uh, problem. I said, there's an extraordinary peace in resting back into God's love. Nothing dramatic has changed in my relationship with God. I loved God to bits beforehand. I love God to bits now. That hasn't changed. It's just that I get a chance to prove that now. And, and I love that. And death, of course, loses all its power. Bad things will happen in life. Now, dear ones, if I say nothing else of any sense to you, and I probably haven't at this point, let me say this, dear ones, with a degree of accuracy. Bad stuff's going to happen to you in life. You are going to be stricken with grief. And you're going to wonder where God is and whether when you reach out you find him. 
That will happen. Have you got it? Tell me this. What are you going to throw in the face of suffering and grief when it comes? Because if you have a Christian hope and you know about God's end game that you were intended to be part of, if you know that you were designed to live forever, if you know that you were designed to be part of God's eternal community, boy, does that kick suffering and grief in the guts. If, if you know... If you have a joy, if you read the, the New Testament, you will see there that the, the New Testament church people couldn't be phased by persecution and suffering. They couldn't. Oh, death, that or oh, persecution, oh, that or oh, crucifixion, oh, that or actually, God has the last word. And I feel enormous pride in sharing suffering with Jesus. I feel the pride of that, the suffering that has to happen before he comes back again. I'm honoured to, to share that. That was their attitude. It's just how different from the totally self-obsessed image that's portrayed as what it is we should be going for in our society today. Do I have any regrets? That'd be a good question, isn't it? I think I do. The regret I have is putting my family and my friends through the emotional turmoil of going through it. Now those close to me realise that actually it's a good journey and are not particularly worried for me. But it is, particularly having been miraculously healed and then getting cancer again, you think, Lord, I can't make the sense of that. And, and what do I say to all my broken-hearted friends? So I do feel regret about that. And my prayer is, Lord, show them the peace and joy that you've showed me. And to somehow believe and, and to know that the God who loves me loves Mary. I mean, loves Mary. But let me also say, it's so important that we are in communities, in families. Welcome to your family here. We need each other. Healing, let's talk about healing. Oh, let me cut, make it really short. There are three stages you go through, okay? Um, in terms of faithlessness to faith. The first is complete faithlessness that says... Um, <clears throat> there is lack of faith, God won't heal me. I don't know, that's the lowest level. <laughs> then you go into a stage where uh, God will heal me. Of course he has, he's promised in his word. And, and you know, Psalm 103 verses, verse 5, I think it is, or the first five verses of Psalm 103, I'm the God who heals you. And, of course, Isaiah 53 um, speaks of bearing all our diseases, Jesus bearing all our diseases. And God has promised to heal me. Just have faith. If you're not healed, try harder to have faith. Are you familiar with that? <laughs> but let me just, okay, let's just deal, that's just, both of that is just crap, just between you and me. It's just rubbish, okay? Um, because then you break through to this beautiful place, which I know very well. And that is, I actually don't care. It is whatever faithfulness looks like. It is only God's glory that matters. Um, 
Whether I'm cured or not, I love God. I trust God. Whether I have a horrible, painful, slow, lingering exit or a quick one, don't care. God is with me. And that is enough. And that is a place of victory. And it is yours, dear ones. The Apostle Paul was familiar with the stage three. He wasn't greatly worried if he lived or died. We have a, a verse up there, uh, Philippians 1, verses uh, 21 to 25. I don't know whether that'll flick up, but let me read it to you. Where Paul says, For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. You're familiar with those words. For me to live is Christ. That's, he's, he's all I live for. He's in me, I'm in him. Uh, for me to live is Christ. And to die, well, that'd be a gain, that'd be a plus. Get an early leave ticket home. That's really what he's saying. And he goes on to say uh, to the Philippian church, if I am to go on living now in this body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I ask the same, same question. Now, Nick, uh, have I got more radio talks to write? Have I got more books to, 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 uh, to write? More people to hug? What shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. How about that? Living or dying? That's Paul. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. And convinced of this, I know that I will remain. Now, he, he's in prison when he's writing this. And uh, he doesn't know he's not going to be executed. But God has told him, Nick, Paul, you've got more work to do, mate. So it looks pretty rough at the moment, but um, you are going to be able to continue your work. And so at that particular point, Paul knew that a potential death sentence was hanging over him, but he got more work to do. He was cool about it. And then we read these spine-tingling verses in 2 Timothy chapter 4. And his language is completely different. Let me read it to you. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. And Paul has come to the end of his life. He's in prison yet again. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering. Now, when you make an offering to the gods in those days, you poured out a libation to the gods and sometimes to the emperor. So he's being poured out like an offering onto an altar of God. And the time of my departure is near. Amazing stuff, isn't it? I have, and he says this, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearance, his appearing. So to you who long for Jesus Christ to come back and, and to, to, to let the truth of, of who God is, his, his beautiful truth about his majesty and his identity, that the truth of his grace and graciousness and love, it's time for that to be known. And Jesus will come back and he will actually sort out. Judgment will follow. It's been said, uh, I have a dear friend of mine said, Nick, uh, you're standing in the thin place. And he's right. Some of you may know about the thin place. Um, it comes from Celtic Christianity. In the ancient Celts, you know, around about the 7th century, 6th century, used to speak of being in the thin place. And they used to go out and, and 
those, it was those places where heaven nearly touched earth, the thin place, heaven nearly touching earth. And so they found these remote rocky islands in, in, in the edge of the Atlantic and they built a monastery there because they, they, it was easy to get in touch and be intimate with God there. They, they built these monasteries in Lindisfarne and, and, and Iona and places like that. And when you're dying, you're standing in the thin place. There's a part of you that's in heaven and part of you on this earth. And let me tell you, it's a good place. Never fear it? Deal? Do I have a bucket list? No. Why would you end your life with a self-obsessed thing where you're pandering to all the things, that, oh, it's going to be hopeless once I'm dead. These are the only things I need. I need to climb Kilimanjaro and fall out of an airplane and with a parachute. I'm thinking, what? Really? Is that, is that the story that you want to be told about you when you're in eternity? That's pathetic. That's self-obsessed. It's pathetic. No, I want to be faithful right to the end. So dealt with that one. Are you frightened you won't have a chance to finish the things we've already started talked about that am I in denial no actually I've been here a long time here's a theological question what happens when you die you hear some odd things as a pastor and Mike will tell you oh my darling is now an angel in heaven actually they're not sorry but you can't say that at a funeral of course you keep very very quiet but in the middle of it, you say actually no they're not actually bad theology oh my love is now a raindrop a zephyr of wind upon my cheek. Actually, darling, that's Buddhism. And it's wrong. Have a nice day. But you can't say that, can you? So you tell me, what happens when you die? Because an awful lot of Christians in the church don't really know. Do you go and be with God in God's kingdom? No. Hasn't turned up yet. That doesn't get put in place till after Jesus has returned. Well, that's very interesting. Then what happened to the thief, the penitent thief who was crucified beside Jesus? When Jesus turns to him and says, Today you will be with me in paradise. Does that mean the resurrected kingdom? No. Because the first person being resurrected is Jesus Christ. And he hadn't even died at that point. And you go on to read 1 Corinthians 15, it makes it very clear that Jesus is called the first fruit, the first one who is to be resurrected. He's the great show and tell. You want to know if there's a resurrected life? Solve your problem. Exhibit A, Jesus. Here you go. <laughs> you see, it's just fantastic. So what happens? Do you know? Not all Christians believe quite the same things, but reading... N.T. Wright, great Anglican theologian who was the Bishop of Durham for a while and some of his stuff, and sort of summarising what the sort of average sense is of biblical understanding. It is this. You drop dead. And it's just a door. That's all it is. Death. Just a door. Uh, <clears throat> it's not the final stop. And... God who stands outside of time prefigures a judgment on all people who drop dead. Some go to paradise, stroke, heaven. Others go to the alternative place, which is called? Sheol, hell, whatever. Not a good place, all right? And they're there because uh, 
Paul's teaching in Thessalonians makes, makes it clear that actually everybody is resurrected. It's not just the good people. Did you know that? Everybody gets resurrected, good and bad, to receive judgment and reward. For Christians, it's not a problem. You just get rewarded for the special things that you did through being faithful to Jesus. But you're safely in God's kingdom. For those who have rejected God in a way that only God knows and want nothing to do with him, God honours that wish of theirs. And the judgment is that you don't have anything to do with God at all. You're cut off. And it's a place of intense regret. Then Jesus comes and there is the final judgment where we talk about the second death. And the second death, many Christians believe that's sort of annihilation as if it never existed. It's really quite interesting actually if you study quantum physics and all the rest of it now, particles can appear and disappear and don't actually exist until they're actually observed and all these sorts of crazy things. There is a bit of a tie-up with that. And if you want me to bore you with that, I'll tell you about that over a cup of coffee. So what happens when you die? Jesus comes back. Everybody's resurrected. There is judgment. For some it is the second death. And for others it is the kingdom of God. You were never designed to be annihilated. You were never designed. You were designed. The hope and the passion of God's heart was that you'd be part of his eternal community. And when we were weary of... or when God was weary of us inventing religions to try and reach this goal we knew instinctively was there, he said, it's time I came to town. And so he comes as Jesus, born in a place where animals feed, giving a pretty fair clue of how much you want to identify with you and me, and then dies on a cross to pay the price for the sin that would otherwise disqualify us from a place with a holy God. That's the good news. So what do you think? That's what's going to happen. So to some extent, heaven and hell are just waiting rooms. Let me just say, heaven is the better waiting room. I shall be distinctly grumpy if I do not see you there. Be warned. Paul talks about a quality of hope that is strong enough to form a foundation for your faith. Quality of hope. What's, what's your level of hope? Christian gospel, that's the thing that burned in the hearts of the early Christians. And that's what I wish for you. So as I just draw this to a clear, there's a famous 20th century French atheist, Jean-Paul Sartre, declared that he so strongly resisted feelings of despair that he would say to himself, I know I shall die in hope. But then with profound sadness, he would add, but hope needs a foundation. Have you got it? And by foundation, I mean something that is, that is real, that is visceral, that is, that is concrete, that is worth, that is true, that is worth building on. And so the triumphal cry of Christians is death, where is your sting? That's what Paul wrote there in 1 Corinthians 15. So I... I, I and before you as, as, a, as a brother, a failing ordinary brother of yours who, who loves Jesus to bits. 
who has received a death sentence. And I had probably the happiest year of my life last year. Joy as well as peace. That's the difference. That's the difference that being drawn into God's love and truth makes. I said I was never afraid of dying. I could simply rest back in God and be content. The gift of cancer is that it's helped me focus on my mission. I'm able to leave church administration alone. Mike. And concentrate on writing, sharing the gospel, blogging, podcasts. So if you're curious, Nick Hawks with an ES on the end. Nick Hawks. Or if you forget that, just remember this is Nick. That's my radio tag. This is Nick dot net. There are resources there about science and faith too, by the way. So that's out there. Those who do not know Christ's gospel of hope are soul witheringly destitute when it comes to hope, identity and purpose. And dear ones, I hope that you are not soul withering destitute when it comes to these things. Jesus came to announce the kingdom of God. Dear ones, I'm here tonight to proclaim that kingdom of God. To say that that was your intended destiny. God reaches from beyond time itself to scoop you up with love, to die for your sins, and to say, will you? I will not force my love. It'll be your choice. But there will come a time when it'll be too late. Will you say yes to my love? Will you say yes to your purpose? Will you be, as the Australian Aboriginal would say, are you mature? Do you know your story? Will you be able to say the right things to the rubies that God brings across your path? Will you be at peace? Will you have the most joyful year of your life when you were told you are going to die? Thanks so much for listening. We'd love to hear from you. For more information and resources, please check out our website, encounteradelaide.com.au and don't forget to leave us a rating and review on your podcast provider. Have an amazing day. God bless.